What's happening, good people of the interwebs? This is Ryan, and on this episode of the Brew Theology Podcast, it's a brand new season. You're going to be listening to my friends Janelle, Shane, Baird, Christina, and Jeff talking about mental health, the elephant in every single room. We discussed this at the pub at Seedstock last week here in Denver, Colorado with about 30-something people. We're going to discuss it again this week. That's what we do. We remix things. We tackle these topics two weeks in our community back-to-back. And this is a recording with a select group that we bring out, new people every week when we publish these, a microcosm of what we do in the pub for two hours every week. You're going to get this. And this is actually going to be a two-part episode. Very vulnerable episode. A lot of great resources in here. You're going to hear people's stories. Uh, This is brave. I got to say that the table that I was moderating last week, it was uh, incredibly gracious and generous, bold and beautiful with these people coming together and expressing their their, their vulnerable side uh, while dealing with their faith and their religion and uh, the spectrum of mental health that we deal with on a regular basis. So if you like this episode, please do us a big favor. Go over on iTunes and rate it. Give us a nice review. Share it online. You can go to Twitter. We're at brew underscore theology. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at brew theology. And make sure you go to the website. We're at brewtheology.org. A lot of things going on. I know we talk about our Denver community because that's where it all began, but we also have a community up in New Jersey. That's right. There's a Brew Theology New Jersey. Nate and the boys up there are doing a great job. They've been cranking out for probably four months now, and I think tonight they had their first guest speaker, so love what you guys are doing up there. We're going to bring them on the podcast to do like a mini session to talk about what's happening up there in their context in the Northeast. Also, Eric in uh, Canton, Ohio, he's going to be getting his going after Labor Day. So Canton, Ohio, you're going to have a Brew Theology chapter. Greeley, man, just met Donnie, had a, had a great time with him. He's going to be starting one up in Greeley, Colorado, coming soon. Also, if you're in the Northwest Metro area, make sure you contact Janelle at Brew Theology to learn about what's going up there in the suburbs of Denver. Wherever you are, we've got about... 80 people that we're in communication with right now that we met at the Wild Goose Festival. Uh, So if you've never been to the Wild Goose Festival, first off, you just got to go. It's one of those things where you actually have to experience it. Uh, But I'm looking forward to partnering with a lot of people from the Wild Goose to hopefully plant these partner chapters across the nation. And really, we want to brew theology, and, and we think that what we're doing is creating these healthy and meaningful and eclectic dialogue in pub communities. We think are not only just changing... Um, ourselves, but they're changing the people around us, making uh, us realize when we look across the table that we're seeing the common good and the common beauty, even in all of our strange differences. So this is something that I think is greatly needed in our world today. Uh, if you want to help us and partner by starting a new group, if you want to crank out uh, you know, some curriculum and you're like, I don't know how to do that, we, we can get you guys going with some training and some assistance. We'll support you guys on social media, also on the podcast. As easy as the Pilsner level. This is where it begins. It's only five bucks a month because a Pilsner usually is about five dollars. And so on, on this uh, level of partnership, you get the logo, you get the leader guide, and you can join the network and we'll retweet, we'll share, we'll put you on the Facebook group where you can troubleshoot with the rest of the leaders. There's the Belgian wit level which is $10 a month, so you get all those things that you get on the Pilsner, but you also get one curriculum a month, and you get an hour of coaching along with that. Uh, the next level up is the Porter level. It's $15 a month, and it's all that you get with the Pilsner, the Wit, and you also get two curriculums per month. And then we go up from there with the IPA level, which is only $20 a month, and you get extra coaching, extra swag. And if you really are like, man, like I like what you guys are doing, I support this, and you want to be a whiskey barrel-aged stout member partner. That's 25 bucks a month. And you will uh, be on the Brew Theology podcast, get some swag, some pint glasses, extra loving and all that good stuff. So if you're interested in partnering, I mean, this is pretty easy. The things that you're going to get out of this, the resources, the alliance, the friendship is so worth it. And uh, I'm just looking for some self-starters that I can help start with so that we can create this friendship across the nation. All right, guys, uh, again, you like the episode, share it, follow us on the interwebs and on social media, and I will talk to you soon. Peace. friends and welcome to Brew Theology and on this episode we're going to talk about mental health, the elephant in every room. And this was written by Shane who will be joining us tonight for our discussion. 
And we just are really excited about this topic. It was really um, apropos and timely around the table. We had great discussions, and I think that you're going to find this really resonates with a lot of the people in your area. Just a few uh, reminders. We have Theology Beer Camp in Denver on August 18 and 19. If you would still like to come, tickets are available, and you are more than welcome to join us. We have possibly more beer than we can drink. Not that I expect that'll be a problem. Uh, Trip Fuller and Pete Rollins are have their tickets bought and they're coming to share with us in Denver. So please join us at beer camp if you, if you can. Also, uh, I think that's everything. If you haven't uh, reviewed us, we would love it if you would do that. That would be super awesome. It helps us get more listeners and gets the word about brew theology spread out. If you're interested in starting a brew theology, please reach out to us and let us know and we'll talk you through any questions that you have. So let's get on with our topic tonight and we're going to talk about mental health. My name is Janelle and as many of you know, I come out of the Church of the Nazarene, uh, went to into kind of independent Christianity about five years ago and now carry the label progressive and tonight I am drinking a Deschutes Black Butte Porter out of Oregon. And I am Shane. I, uh, I was raised with very little spiritual interaction in Kansas um, until college, where I got involved with the campus ministry, and that led me down some roads, um, and uh, kind of wrestled with a lot of that, and I moved to, to Denver, and when I got there... I try to discover what my faith meant in that new context and with that new experience under my belt. And now I would say that I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm dabbling with what it means to be a post-progressive Christian and uh, what that looks like and how that interacts with, with my, my worldview. Post-progressive. Exactly, uh-huh. exactly. I'm, I'm beginning to discover that progressive Christianity still has a very much a religiosity to it that... I'm not sure I want to be a part of. So figuring that out, um, which is just fine, as I'm drinking an 8-bit pale ale from Tallgrass, um, which actually comes from Manhattan, Kansas, where I went to college. Woo-hoo. I'm Jeff, and um, I was raised conservative fundamentalist. Um, and when I got into high school, started questioning, started moving more in a progressive de- uh, direction, I um, moved through evangelicalism to whatever maybe post-evangelicalism means. Um, For a time, I stopped claiming the label Christian. Um, Not that I had walked away from those beliefs, but the label seemed to mean something different in our culture than I was willing to accept. Um, Now, I consider myself uh, post-evangelical, progressive, Christian. Um, I've re-accepted the label Christian as long as I can define what that means. Um, Like Janelle, I'm also drinking a Deschutes Black Butte Porter. Hi, I'm Christina. Uh, I grew up in a very Baptist household. My grandfather was an independent fundamental Baptist preacher uh, growing up. Uh, That continued on into a very Christian education. Uh, I went to a private school that was attached to a church. So if I wasn't at church, I was at school. If I wasn't at school, I was at church. Um, So right now I'm kind of more of a non-denominational mixed with a little bit of pluralism, just trying to see the different facets of God and how they work in between all the religions. Um, I'm drinking a Koppenberg pear cider tonight. And I'm Baird. Uh, labels, that's always a fun one. Uh, I grew up in the United Methodist Church, uh, spent some good time in the Nazarene Church, am now probably also in the um, progressive Christian camp. Um, and... I am drinking uh, Celestial Seasonings uh, Sleepy Time Tea, but the new peach flavor, which is quite good. All right. Well, we're going to share a little uh, part of the curriculum with you, and then we'll get into our questions. And just as a reminder, I think you all have heard this before, but our conversation guidelines are in- 
include these things. One, no soapbox is allowed. No one person or viewpoint gets the last word. Two, respect all others and their viewpoints. Three, extend courtesy by listening well. Four, everything is up for discussion. And finally, don't be a jerk. Mental Health America, the MHA, reports that one in five adults in America have a mental health condition, over 40 million people. The World Health Organization, WHO, says that number rises to over 300 million people worldwide. In addition, over half of those Americans with conditions have not received treatment. WHO, the World Health Organization, characterizes a mental illness by a combination of abnormal thoughts, perceptions, emotions, behavior, and relationships with others. This includes bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, ADHD, anxiety, depression, oppositional defiant disorder, developmental disorders, and autism. To sum it up, any condition that inhibits an individual's ability to deal with the normal stresses of life. Just like physical health, there is a spectrum that everyone falls on that changes throughout your life. You may be more or less physically fit than you were last beach season. Likewise, you may be more or less mentally fit than you were last election cycle. Individuals experience physical conditions and mental health conditions that impact their overall well-being. Some people are more resilient than others, and some people experience environmental factors that lead to temporal mental health conditions. Several individuals and environmental factors play a part in an individual's mental health. There is certainly a genetic component that allows for a basal disposition to manage one's emotions, thoughts, and behaviors. Then we layer in nutritional, social, cultural, economic, and political factors such as standards of living, working conditions, and community support. Globally, low-income communities are most heavily impacted by mental health. WHO, WHO, indicates that in low- and middle-income countries, only between 76 and 85% of those with mental disorders receive treatment for their condition. Barriers that prevent optimal mental health are pervasive. Perhaps the most pervasive is the cultural stigma and shame around mental health. We have a narrative that might vary slightly, but tells us that any mental health issue is something we should just toughen up, get over, and never talk about again. That is vastly different than how we talk about a physical ailment like cancer. Sangdell, I probably just butchered that, says that those experiencing mental health illness suffer in solitude silenced by stigma. The Huffington Post described the cultural stance on mental health not only as stigma but discrimination. The article stated its blatant prejudicial outlook on a certain population. This stance is drastically antithetical to most mental health professionals' strongest treatment, talking and openness about the issues. We have developed a narrative of shame that keeps us from engaging the heart of true healing. Vulnerability and honesty are the hardest and most important steps someone experiencing a mental health issue can take. To walk that road, a community of understanding, support, and safety are crucial. Those who deny their experiences are the ones who are most affected by it. People experiencing a mental health issue, especially ones that are intense and or chronic, can lose hope, feel overwhelming despair, and grasp at any relief. Nearly 800,000 people die from suicide each year. Suicide is credited as the second leading cause of death in 15 to 29-year-olds. The consequences for silence are significant. The impact is real. The prevention, response, and social perception is poor. So before we jump into the questions, I just want to um, just recognize for a second everyone that's in the circle right now with me. This is a hard issue to talk about, and we're going to talk about why that is. But what we're doing here by engaging with this at Brew Theology is exactly to do to bring this into the light and to say that there's nothing wrong with talking about mental health. It is necessary and it's important for health of individuals and communities. I want to especially say that if you're in a religious community and you're facing stigma around mental health issues or talking about mental health issues, this is something your community needs to work on. Um, these issues need to be dealt with carefully and properly. As we saw last week, a young woman was recently found in the desert in California after her pastor had told her that her bipolar medications were allowing Satan to enter her. This is not okay at all, ever. Um, and so if you're facing those kinds of messages, 
I hope that this will encourage you to speak up and to become an ally to those around you with mental health issues that are facing this kind of discrimination and oppression. Also, I just want to point out, too, that if you do feel like you need to talk to someone about this, I just want to point out um, the suicide hotline really quick at 1-800-273-8255. Just it takes strength to go through what mental health does to people. And just there's people there on the other side that will help you out. So if you are facing those feelings, please feel free to dial in. Absolutely. All right, so as we get started tonight, uh, we're going to start with question number one. As much as you feel comfortable, what has been your experience or observation of mental health issues, and how would you define it? Well, I definitely come from a tradition of silence um, that mental health kind of brings with it this, this stigma of something larger. I actually grew up not too far from a state hospital where people go with very severe mental health issues. Um, I, I, I worked there for a while and like, so it, you would see people with like s- extreme schizophrenia that were, were leading them to places that were, that were dangerous. Um, or even just addictions as well kind of fell into that, some of that. So, so I can I came from a place where like, if, if it's, it's embarrassing if you can't handle your own mental health, if you are not resilient enough, if you're not man enough or woman enough to control your own thought processes and overcome, um, the, the daily stressors of life. It was, it was something where you shouldn't talk about it. Now that has changed a lot. And I think like even in that, in that, that part of the world, um, it's changing a lot. I look at some of my family and some of the education that they've gone through and their ability to, to see more clearly some of these, these health issues that there are, there are treatments for, there is help for, and that it's not, someone's inability or any, any lack of character that leads to these, these conditions. Right. In my tradition, uh, where I grew up, there was a, um, in the fundamentalist tradition, um, that I grew up in, there was very much of a pushback against the mental health, um, topic or industry, um, with the ideas that, um, many of these things could just be overcome if we had more faith in in God or um, prayed more or went to church more um, or, you know, had the right influences. Um, and that, and the pushback really kind of came to a head at, in that mental health professionals were viewed as leading people astray. Mm-hmm. Like the example that you used of this woman in California. Um, I, I could certainly see someone from my youth or a pastor from my youth saying something very similar. Yeah. And I had a very similar experience as well, where mental health was just seen as we were extremely skeptical of you getting health. Now, if you want to get pastoral counseling, that's Okay. Though most pastors don't have hardly any training in mental health at all. Um, But definitely a huge skepticism, that idea of being led astray. And let's put it on the record once right now and then throughout the rest of the evening. Mental health issues are not sin. Absolutely not. No way. No. So if that's something you've heard, you've heard it here. That's, That's a lie. Mental health is not a sin. It is something that needs to be properly dealt with through proper channels. Um, but many of us coming out of especially Christian traditions have heard otherwise. And that that's really tough. So the way I first experienced mental health um, was through the media. Um, when I was little growing up, I remember watching a interview with Mark Summers, who, if you're an 80s kid, he was the host of Double Dare on Nickelodeon, and it came, come to find out he had obsessive compulsive disorder, and it really brought light into my thinking that, you know, something like this happens all the time. Um, then, you know, then we're all brought up to, like, well, you know, you can just stop it, mm-hmm. but 
we, you know, come to find out, you know, with mental illness, you just can't stop those, those thoughts, those triggers, those whatever. And I think that's what we experience now. Right. Cause I feel like if you, if you could stop, you would have already, right? Like that's, right. it just makes sense, right? Like, I mean, if you, I mean, same way with like a physical ailment, like if you could stop it, you absolutely would. No one would choose to be in pain. Right. If you could make it stop, you would. Um, and I think the other thing that goes along with it is sometimes people find help in medicine, but then they kind of feel like, oh, I'm better. So then I must not need this. Um, and that doesn't work with pain management any more than it works with mental health issues. So one example of this is often schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, where you can feel start feeling very stable, very functional. You're you're working in the world much better. Oh well, maybe maybe I'm cured, um, and you stop taking medicine, and then you have to start over again, and that that's really rough. So. So let's take a moment. I know Shane did a great job in the curriculum of giving us a little definition of mental health, but let's expand that a little bit. Um, what are some things that, you know, you see as part of mental health? Where are the lines between, are there lines between mental health and personality things? How does that all function? Yeah, I think there's absolutely um, some kind of misnomers in that. And like what with our culture that we talk so readily about, especially like, OCD, you know, we talk about, mm -hmm. oh, that, that person must be OCD because they keep like their DVDs straight or something, right? Like that's, um, yes, that might be like a personality trait, but that's not necessarily a mental health disorder or condition. Right. Um, I, I would say like they, you know, have to like turn doorknobs three times as they walk through a door, or, like flip the light switches multiple times or knock or those are the kind of things that we're talking about where it kind of interferes with you interacting with the world. It, it, it like we can, we listed those those things that um that really factors in it, and if those are impacted by this condition, that is a little bit more than than a personality trait. Yeah, I um I've always learned of OCD and like I call it obsessive personality, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, um where like if it doesn't keep you up at night, it's not OCD. You know, I I know people who will be up all night worrying about did I cause an accident rather than, oh, my my books aren't straight. Okay, now they're straight. I'm done. So, yeah. One of the things that comes up regularly is that we have a, a pattern in our society where we use mental health uh, labels on people that we disagree with or that irritate us or whatever else. And by using those labels or using them, uh, as you were saying, as self-descriptive, uh, you know, oh, that was a horrible ADHD moment that I forgot your, your no, I just forgot your thing. Um, we end up adding to the stigma or the uh, or we make light of the actual suffering that people with these challenges are actually facing. And both of those, by promoting a view of the world that any, that any of these challenges that people face are really horrible things that you don't want, we're stigmatizing them, or by making light of them, we're saying they don't exist or don't matter. And that's something is very hard to, to remember because, you know, just the, oh, I'm so stupid type thing. But we, we have all of these names scattered throughout our, our common use of language that we take mental health and we make light of it. You're so crazy. Yep. <laughs> I tend to have a little bit broader view of mental health issues and disorders, but um, without necessarily stating what that broader view is, I guess I'm just sort of at wondering, sitting here wondering, how do we draw a distinction between someone who says, my communication patterns are interfering with me having 
healthy, successful relationships with those around me. So do I have a mental health disorder or do I just need to learn to communicate better maybe? And, or is learning to communicate better a mental health, you know, have at least have um, roots in mental health. I think that kind of goes back to like, there's no, there's no hard line that it is a spectrum, just like, like our physical health is, is this spectrum that we have. Um, yes. Would I like to be more physically fit? Absolutely. Would I like to be more mentally fit? Absolutely. Does that mean either kind of interfering with my, my daily functions? Not all the time. Maybe there are, there are moments where I become so anxious or so um, worried or even depressed. I mean, it hasn't rained or it hasn't, hasn't, hasn't seen the sunshine in Colorado <laughs> in what, three, four days? Like we're dying here. Where it's, it's awful. <laughs> I did not move to Seattle people. <laughs> exactly. Um, so th- I mean, there's, there's temporal issues. There's, there's intensity with it. Absolutely. And it's, it's a spectrum. Um, would I, would I want to diagnose myself with an issue? Probably not because the intensity and like the duration aren't as intense. Uh, do I want to talk about it with people? Are there things that have me me down and a little blue? Yes. And I would love to like have those conversations with people I care about um, and be able to address them. And even like with communication, I would, I would love for like, if I was communicating poorly, being able to say, Hey, that's, that's a part of my mental health that I want to be more fit in. Like, what can I do? Who can I talk to? What resources can I gather to establish that? And I think that another place we see that more often in our society right now is with Asperger's, which is on one end of the autism spectrum. And so autism has lots of different kinds of disabilities inside of it. But if you're on the far end of and just a little bit Aspie, again, that line can get really blurry between is there a genetic component to why I don't communicate real well or why I don't read people real well? Or is that a learned behavior that maybe came out of my environment? And I think that was a really interesting question that came up at our table was, you know, what happens with personality disorders? Because technically those are in, I believe they're in the DSM, but they're not mental health issues. They're personality disorders. But often those personality disorders are passed on because of the environment that you're in. So, for instance, if you have a narcissistic parent or parents, you're much more likely to either be narcissistic or have borderline personality disorder. So we see how those things kind of get passed down, even though right now we don't see a genetic component in those. um, Maybe someday we will. Uh, but they play out over the long term, over the life of a family as it continues. And I think that that mental health also passes on in that way. If you grew up with uh, depressed parents or a lot of anxiety or any of these other things, that's something kids are going to pick up on. It's going to shape how they behave and it's going to shape how they raise their own family. And, and so we start to see that this is a, a much bigger thing than just one person having some sort of illness. Uh, For me, I just can't help but think about this in terms of the Bible verse that says, well, your sin will be on on the third and fourth generation. And we always, at least where I was taught, that was like, you know, premarital sex, that's going to be passed Uh on to the third and fourth generation. Um, How about we talk about bipolar disorder Mm -hmm. (laughs) and see what that does to the third and fourth generation. And um, I think that the that's one of the ways the church has kind of tried to alter that narrative that these things aren't real, that they don't have a real impact. And that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cause it's absolutely, it's a mix. It's a cocktail of genetic and environmental factors mm-hmm. that impact all of it. Even, even thinking of like a very traumatic event that happens in a family and the kid is going to see how that parent reacts to it. And, if, and that grief and that depression. And that's how like is modeled and how they see, okay, that's how you deal with it. That's how it's handled which may not be beneficial. Right. So I absolutely agree. Like it's, it's this mix here. And, um, I'm kind of in a, kind of in a, a place where we like to like really describe everything and have like this, this line in the sand for all of it. And it's, it's not the case. Like there's, there's so much going on. And honestly, like the treatment is the same, right? Just right. like you think about like, um, like learning disabilities, right? Like that there are, there's strategies and treatments and like ways to, to help, um, kids learn, adults learn, um, whether it's like different colored 
pieces of paper for dyslexia or like things like that, right? The same is true. Like doesn't it almost doesn't matter how you got there, right? There's the treatment is still the same. There's still like the same um, resources for working through some of those issues. Mm-hmm. So when is it worth seeking help? Great question. Absolutely. I would say first and foremost, hopefully you have a community around you that would be like, something's off here. I see that. I recognize that. And, and it's a safe enough space that I can, I can talk to you about it and see um, where that is. Cause honestly, like a lot of these times, like if you're experiencing some kind of issue with your mental health, you probably won't see it yourself until it becomes pretty severe. Um, so having that community around you, I think is, is beautiful. And you yeah. have to, we have to foster that. That's, that's what the world needs is connections, right? That's, that's what changes lives. I, you know, I, I appreciate that. I, I scratch my head about that though. I think especially around depression and some of the other ones that people are able to manage or cover over. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure that would be true. I'd kind of think that like, especially with depression, people do an amazingly good job of hiding it until it's really, really bad. And I think, I think there's wisdom in knowing the point at which you realize that something is wrong with your world and it's time to go talk to someone, even, even if no one else can see that. If, if you know something has changed and you don't like where it's going, um, especially in this era where more people have mental health coverage in their insurance, go and take advantage of it while you can. Um, better to go and talk to somebody and have them say, hey, you're fine, you're normal, this happens to everybody, than to wait until it's a complete crisis that your friends are intervening and, and driving you somewhere hoping to find help, which is harder to do than you'd think. And I think there's definitely a balance in between both of those, uh, you know, being self-aware and being in community as those two things work together, though they're both indicators of when we need help. But if you're asking the question, if you've been thinking lately, you know, I'm feeling kind of depressed, maybe I need help, or I'm worrying a lot, maybe I need help, then call your insurance company, find out where you can go and go get help. Or, or just Google, you know, there's multiple sites out there for your local um, mental health um, resources. Because yep. I know there's several out there um, for free or low cost, you know, if you are in that position and you do need to talk to someone. So just Google, you know, the mental health facilities in your area and you should be able to find something because there are people willing to listen to you and say, you know, tell you the truth about stuff. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about as we, from that question, it's great. Like why is mental health so difficult to talk about and what are the stigma or beliefs that we hold around the topic? Um, and how are these issues perceived? So we can start at the beginning of that. Like exactly like, how do you know when you need help? Well, how do I know when it's okay to talk about why is it hard to talk about this? Uh, what are some of the things that we've all experienced that make it hard to talk about mental health? I think, again, like it's so so misperceived as tied to your character. Mm-hmm. It's so directly related to who I am as a person and the value in which I hold in, in the world. And, man, nobody wants to admit <laughs> that my character might be flawed. That's if that's the if that's the narrative, then you're gonna avoid it. You're not gonna enter into that. Um, and if you do, you're gonna kind of s- skirt around the edges, hoping that like if someone you know like is sensitive enough to pick up on it, that maybe we can have a conversation. But other than that, I'm just gonna live in my own little world and try to put on the happy face as long as possible. Yep. I think there's also a stigma around talking about it as well, because you know whenever you're you know 
again, you're, you're blue, you're depressed, you're sad, you know, people are like, oh, cheer up, you know, tomorrow's going to be a new day. And, you know, turn that frown upside down. And this will, this helps me cheer up. Or, you know, if it, you, well, if it's OCD, like, oh, just stop that. You know, you can easily stop that, that compulsion. You, so it's, to me, it's everyone cops takes the easy way to try to solve it. But to the person who's asking for help, it's a serious problem. And they know it goes beyond the either the stopping it or, you know, try to, you know, smile and, you know, imagine you're in a happy mm-hmm. spot and everything like that. I just want to interject there too. I think those are awful responses. Those are <laughs> disgustingly awful. That is not what someone experiencing mental health condition needs to hear at that moment. Right. They need they need the empathy. They need the understanding. They just need to be heard. You're not their savior. They don't need that. Right. But I think that also plays in into we don't have tools for talking about this. Um, as someone who looked at going into the ministry, you can go through most of your program. You might get a class that sort of passingly mentions that if you get a real problem, you should refer them. But there's there's very little material out there that tells people how to handle it. And you want to encourage your friend, you want to cheer them up, but if you don't know what the symptoms are and you don't know what questions to ask and you don't know how do you how do you respond in a helpful way, and then to the fact that we have the stigmas, the faster I can get off the topic and onto something else, the less uncomfortable I am as the person in the conversation. Both of those play against our providing any useful assistance. So let's talk about, for a moment, something that we can do. So on the notes, in the resources, Shane was really on top of it when he listed mental health first aid. So if you don't feel like you have any tools or you're rusty on your tools or you just want more tools to be able to deal with this better, I want to encourage you to go to mentalhealthfirstaid.org. Mental Health First Aid is a training program in which you can go and learn a set of tools on how to respond to someone that's in a mental health crisis. What they do is they'll teach you about basic ways to identify mental health issues and then they teach you a way to respond to it. Most of the time, Your company will probably help pay for you to go to mental health first aid. If they won't, look around and you can find a church or a school system or other organization that may offer it for free or cheap. I would say to you, if it's 20 bucks, if it's 30 bucks, go. It's worth every single penny because what you walk away with is an ability to say, okay, if I'm encountering someone that I know is suffering, Here are the things that I can do in that very moment to help them move forward towards better mental health. I cannot recommend it enough. I did it several years ago in Kansas. Shane, have you, you've done it? Yeah, I've done it here in Colorado. So I just, I really want to encourage you visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org. Look up your state. You can find where there's uh, presentations available and take one as soon as you can. You will not regret it. It's a great, great program. And we're not getting paid to say this. So, But if we were... But if we were, we would say it anyway. <laughs> so it's, a, it's really spectacular. So, yeah, mental health is hard to talk about because a lot of times we don't know what to say. We don't have training in it. We're not exposed to a lot of it. Um, but also there are these stigmas and beliefs that we hold around mental health that make it also difficult. So let's talk about some of those things that we've encountered in our lives what are some of the stigmas and beliefs that we hold around mental health? For one, Shane said, um, a flaw in my character. Um, maybe it would be good to admit that we're all probably flawed in our character at some point. Mm. I know. That's, <laughs> you right. You right. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and another one that, I mean, we, from Christian backgrounds that we come out of and maybe other faith backgrounds is that it's sin. You know, if you can just dig around and get the sin out and confess it and fix it, then it's going to go away. And that's, or or God's going to heal you or God will heal you, which we're not saying he can't, but I'm saying if you need serotonin, then you need serotonin. 
And when we when we make it again, not saying there aren't such things as demons, but when we make it about any of these things outside of us, we take away our agency and the ability to receive treatment. Um instead of instead of leaving us in a place where we can work with people that are able to provide help and our worldview has to evolve with science and the understandings we have we understand the brain better now in the last 5 or 10 years than we've understood at any point before and that will continue and as we learn and, and get new tools, we need to take advantage of those. What are some other stigmas or beliefs? I think one is that it's not real. Yeah. That it's, it's just it's this, invisible. Right. It's, it's in just this, your head. Yes. It's imaginary. It's just, you know, like you're, you're being a brat, you're whining, you're, you know, whatever, right? Like you, you created it. Yep. Or if you're not bleeding, it isn't real. Um, and on the flip side of that, from not understanding it, uh, we worked with a, a teenage girl a, a number of years back, and she was absolutely, completely convinced that because her mother suffered severely from mental health, that that was inevitably what was going to happen to her. Uh, best that we know, it still hasn't, and hopefully it never does, but we, we, we don't understand it, and so we treat it like a disease. We assume we're going to catch it, or, you know, and, and those, those can create their own problems. It's just lack of understanding is, is bad. As much as we live in a postmodern world, too, there's such an element of existentialism in our in our culture if i don't if i can't see it if i can't perform a scientific test and duplicate it you know with the exact same results a hundred times um it must not be as valid as something that i can put in a test tube um and so i mean shane you pointed out about um, you made the comparison between physical health and mental health. Um, and yet there's not as much of a stigma on physical health because we can see a broken leg or a broken arm, um, but we can't necessarily see depression or, um, or see things like uh, you know, OCD. Um, so I think it's interesting. That's, it's, it's a very good point because with the current discussion around, uh, healthcare and things like diabetes, where many of the elected leaders of our countries are saying that, well, diabetes is just because you don't take care of yourself, not recognizing that there is a genetic component there, that there is, um, an underlying component that no, you're, we can't see with the naked eye. We can test for it. But we can't see it, and you're just fat, so it must be all your fault. And to me, that sounds very similar to how often we treat mental illness. Um, well, I can't see it, and and you don't do something right, or you're predisposed to it, and so it's all your fault. Uh, and that's not helpful. That does not help find solutions. So it even seems like in physical health that there's this this line of like the acceptable out of your control and this... And the other side where you're completely in control, in control and it's your fault, like that you you are this way. Well, being being overweight. Being, yeah. I mean, many people say that that's all my fault. But what we're seeing in the scientific studies is that that is not true. There are several factors that they're finding that have a huge influence on weight, including that your microbiome, which I cannot fix easily. Um, predispositions through your family, or even we, we discount it, but the patterns that you were raised in, having to relearn how to eat from the way that your family and your family's family all ate is, is a big deal. And that's, I'm not saying that's an excuse, and I wouldn't say it's an excuse for someone with mental health either, but there needs to be a level of understanding that says, I recognize that there are a lot of things stacked against you in this and we need to work to the best health that we can get to not say well this isn't an issue it's just all made up in your head 
Yeah, it seems like a, a matter of like judgment and elitism of, of mm-hmm. like the people that don't experience those things and haven't for a generation, right? Like, and so yeah. I, what I, what I kind of think of that right too, like what we need more of less less judgment for for starters, right? But more of just a conversation about health that isn't layered with this bias and this stigma and this like this disgusting feeling, right? That like we can talk about all aspects of health in a very open and free way. Right. Well, you you say elitism there. The, um, the I wasn't going to throw this in, but the term is ableism. And it is assuming that it is normative and only acceptable to be able-bodied, able-minded, whatever else, and any deviation from that is completely unacceptable. Um, You know, we, we can look at someone, for example, with Down syndrome and say they're disabled, or we can accept often that they are extremely loving and caring people, even if they have a more limited faculty in other ways. Um, but it doesn't reduce their their personhood. And um, I, we have some friends uh, who are intellectually challenged, and... Um, it, it's hard. I mean, sometimes you have the same conversation about the same topic every time you see them. Um, at the same time, I don't have more loyal and good friends who are more supportive any in anything, even if they don't under you know really understand where we are and. It's hard. We want to do the easy thing and and say that's not something I need to worry about, or I can ignore them because that's who they are. Um, but by by taking that approach, we do we do limit and impact what we have. And then, in the same way with mental health it's hard to deal with some of these at, when you're around people manifesting the results of mental illness, but when they can get help and, and be more functional or just in taking care of them, it's, it's good for our souls in its own way, even if it is hard. Yep. I definitely agree with your, um, with your thoughts about how ableism plays a big role in this. And I was thinking along the lines of the, um, some of the media and political drivers behind this as well. Um, just, you know, when we're watching TV or watching movies or hearing politicians speak about these things, um, if we recognize these things as a, as a healthcare problem, or a, or a, um, or something that isn't necessarily the afflicted's fault, quote unquote, um, then maybe we have a compassionate duty to help them. Um, but for the sake of ableism, for the sake of our culture being wrapped up a lot in, you know, what monetary value do you provide to the culture? Um, we, it's easier to say, it's your fault you're this way, or just get over it, or whatever these horrible, really awful things are that people say to people with mental health issues um, in order to divert attention from our responsibility as a society. Yeah. Yeah. And I... I would, I would also say that I, we see at least some, uh, we see at least some cases where the two end up being tied together to address my depression, to address my social anxiety, to address whatever else is going on. I resort to things that will alter my state, 
And then we get into alcoholism and drug abuse and other things, not as the primary problem, but as the consequence of self-medicating and self-treating for an underlying condition. And then that becomes a double challenge for us in terms of healthcare. Um, and that's, I don't know that we want to really go that far afield on this topic, but it's interesting how these things start to tie back into other areas. Well, I think that, that where your point takes us, it just reemphasizes that the stigmas that are in our culture around mental health mean that people don't get the help they need when they need it. And then often that leads to how do I manage my life and keep going when I'm dealing with chronic depression or I'm, de- I'm dealing with some serious anxiety that I can't manage. I don't know how to talk about because no one around me ever talked about it. And so I'm going to drink or I'm going to... Um, do a sport to the extreme to keep my adrenaline, to keep things under control or whatever it may be. And so as those stigmas start to uh, uh, subside, then maybe we'll find ways to balance that out better. Kind of what I'm hearing from that too, is that these stigmas are systemic and that like, even like the Huffington Post article talked about, like it's discrimination, right? Like it's, it's so entrenched in not only what we think and what we do, but how collectively the organization of government, of policies, of all of that plays a factor in it as well. Right. And we're seeing a lot of that right now. And that is kind of scary. Absolutely. So uh, we're going to pause for just a minute on our side, and then we'll come back and share some of our stories and talk about how mental health and the church do or do not get along. Well, thank you, friends, for listening. You just finished part one of Mental Health, The Elephant in Every Room. Thanks again to my good friends, Janelle, Baird, Shane, Christina, and Jeff for your vulnerability, your presence, and your ability to get online and to be brave. And uh, thank you so much uh, for listening as well. If you like this episode, please do us a favor and share it online. Part two is coming next week. Talk to you soon. Peace. Peace.